Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is returning author and New Books Network host, Stephen Lee Nash. We discuss his new book, Screen Captures, Film in the Age of Emergency, published in 2021 by New Star Books. In a series of essays, Stephen discusses various topics and reviews films related to each. Written during the pandemic, he also talks about the current state of film. Welcome, Stephen Lee Nash. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hi, Joel. Nice to see you again. Yes, we've actually talked to each other three other, two other times, and then you've also been on the New Books Network with another one of your books, uh, all of which are listed in the show notes in case anyone wants to go back and listen to some of your previous appearances. In addition, you've done some recording as a host for the New Books Network uh, in the music uh, section, so those are out there too if anybody wants to listen to them. Um, But we're here to talk about your new book, Screen Captures, Film in the Age of Emergency, published in 2021 by New Star Books. We're talking towards the end of September, and the book's scheduled to be published in the next week or so, but as we've already discussed off Uh, before we started, there are clearly publishing paper issues that are causing most books to be a little late. So although I suspect if you're the right person, like I think Bob Woodward's book came out on time yesterday, so I suspect we're just not on the same level. But anyway, uh, so what we're going to do is talk a little bit about you and type you know, touch a little bit on your previous books, and then we'll get into this book as well. So I hope uh, we have a good conversation. Yeah, thanks very much, Joel. Okay, so Stephen Lee Nash, um, you are in Canada. Uh, you were born in the United Kingdom, am I not, Am I correct? You are indeed, yes. I was born in the city of Leicester in the Midlands. Okay, um, so let's talk a little bit about your background. As I say, you've been with me before, and you've probably given a lot of this already, but you never assume that the same that people have listened to past episodes because people with thing with podcasts is people join on whenever they do. So it's not unusual for people to sort of come and go. So uh, give me, talk a little bit about what led you to want to write about film or to study film. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, well, thanks again for having me on. And uh, I'll try not to repeat myself too much in this part of the uh, introduction. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I grew up in uh, in uh, Leicester in the United Kingdom. Um, I was born there and I lived there until about the age of uh, 31 when I moved here to Canada with my wife and uh, our, our kid. And um, back, in, uh, back in Leicester, you know, I was just uh, – I grew up on uh, – I grew up on a, like a council estate uh, just outside of the city of Leicester and um, uh, council estate here for American listeners might just be sort of like socialized housing basically. And uh, I was just, you know, a kid into film and uh, into like pop culture of the, of the sort of 1980s and uh, 1990s. And that's reflected quite a bit in the writing that I do. Um, but yeah, you know, I, so I, I wasn't particularly a great student, so I didn't really do so well at school, but I left school at 16 and worked for a little while. And I worked in a, uh, my first ever job was a, uh, working as a, um, uh, a packer for a, a camera store. So I was handling all this camera equipment, like, you know, camcorders and editing software and things like that. And, uh, by proxy, I kind of just figured all this stuff out. And then uh, a couple of years into that, I realized that I um, didn't really want to be a packer for the rest of my life. So decided that I would uh, go back to college and study the things that I was kind of interested in, which at that time, being sort of 18 years old, was mostly just kind of music and clothes. But, you know, I went and uh, I studied Like most 18-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it was pretty pretty amazing to be a 16 17 year old with a full-time job and uh, just so much disposable income that uh, I could go out every week and buy you know free new records 
a bunch of new shirts, new jeans, and still have money left over. I wish I'd, I wish I'd saved more money when I was uh, younger there. But um, uh, you know, anyway, so I, uh, I, I went to study uh, media at Leicester College, and my initial feelings were that uh, I really wanted to be, uh, or uh, maybe write mu about, about music. So music journalism was kind of the thing that I was really into at that time. I was a big reader of uh, music magazines like the NME and Melody Maker and things like that, and just going to see bands every couple of weeks and just really enjoying that. So I went and I, I did a year and then I did another two years. And while I was there, I got to make films as well. And we got to talk about films in class and it was just really, really fascinating. And the people that I was at college with were obviously really uh, kind of film obsessives as well. So my, my dwindling disposable income kind of went on uh, VHS cassettes as opposed to uh, CDs and records. And I kind of like built up a little film collection of VHS record, uh, VHS uh, cassettes, just as they were dying out and being replaced by DVD. So they were always super cheap. You could always go to Virgin Megastore and pick up a, a VHS cassette for like two pounds, equivalent of maybe two dollars or something like that. And then I, uh, yeah, so, you know, I got into kind of like filmmaking. Um, when I left college, I uh, was, I went to work at a regular job went to work for a bookstore but on the side as a kind of like side hustle i would go out with my um 150 camcorder and go and film bands that were visiting leicester and bands that were already kind of in leicester and developed a kind of uh, reputation as the guy who would kind of film your band while you were playing live for a rel relatively little money if any maybe just a few beers or something like that was usually what I would, what I would ask for, you know, if I'm, if I'm there, I'll, I'll take a couple of beers from the bar and I'll film your band and edit the uh, footage together for you. And you can use it on your MySpace page and things like that. So I kind of did that for a few years and really enjoyed it. But, you know, I get, you get to the age of like, you know, 27, 28 and you realize that uh, hanging out in like smoky back rooms and, uh, at, at two o'clock in the morning isn't really going to be uh, sustainable. So um, I ended up sort of like leaving behind filmmaking, but still really very passionate about film itself. And what I really wanted to do was uh, write about film, but use film as a, as a lens to look at wider issues of politics and uh, pop culture and society and technology and things like that. And so I went back to... Um, I went back to college. I studied with the Open University, which is a bi-correspondence university in the UK. Had, an, again, just a really great experience of, uh, of doing that. I studied politics. I studied creative writing. I studied essay writing. And then I sort of began in the background, again, just still working, but writing about film and planning, you know, the, the uh, possibility of... Um, putting a book together on uh, on Dennis Hopper who was who was my man back then and uh, that, that that book actually did come together and was released in 2016 by Amsterdam University Press and me and Joel discussed that a few years ago and uh, yeah and then you know the move to Canada kind of happened and when I arrived in Canada I wasn't really able to work for a few months so I had all this stuff circulate like circulating around my head about sort of film and and uh, I had some time to write it because I couldn't work for a couple of months so I would just sort of uh, take some time with a laptop and just try and bash out a bunch of essays as quick as possible and started submitting them places and gathered a, a you know kind of a publication history online and uh, yeah, that kind of led me to my first book uh, called USA Politics and Humanity in American Film which came out in 2014 with uh with zero books, which was always kind of an ambition of mine to publish with zero books, actually, because when I was a bookstore worker, I would see their books uh, come in every uh, every you know couple of weeks and always be really intrigued by their titles. So it was really great to be published by them. And yeah, that kind of led me to then publish the uh, book on Dennis Hopper and uh, and uh, then a book on uh, Dirty Dancing a few years after that. And then I took a little break from film writing in the last couple of years to concentrate on. Uh, writing a little bit about music, going back to sort of what I initially wanted to do, like back in, uh, you know, back in the um, 
late 90s, early 2000s and do some music writing. So I wrote a book about, well, actually, I wrote two books uh, about a band called the Manic Street Preachers. They're a, a Welsh uh, punk band turned stadium rock band, one of the most popular bands in the United Kingdom. In fact, as we're talking right now, they've just released a new record and it's just hit the number one spot in the, uh, in the United Kingdom. So they've been going for like 30 odd years and they're still, you know, racking up number one albums. So they're still a very, very popular band. So that was really great. You know, I got to sort of um, write about them and have some really cool experiences of just sort of uh, talking about the Manics. And, but, you know, this, this collection, um, of uh, essays which has been kind of put together into uh, screen captures has kind of always been on the background uh, for the last few years as well I mean even when I was writing about music I was writing about film as well so yeah that kind of I mean that kind of brings you up to date of where where I am right now I suppose Joel so um, the book is a series of essays not all of which I mean they're all written by you obviously but not necessarily first for this book, um, since but you've already pointed out that you do quite a bit of writing in various places. What is the oldest essay in this book, if you don't mind me asking? I, I think the oldest essay comes from about 2014, actually. I think I wrote maybe one or two of them kind of in support of the, uh, of the very first book. But, you know, just, just kind of like everything, you know, the, I've kind of been, they've kind of been lost to the internet a little bit. And, um, but I'm still very like proud of those pieces and wanted to sort of get them out, even though they were kind of, uh, were out at one point, but kind of lost. So, you know, this, uh, this, what we decided to do or what initially I wanted to do anyway was, um, so I submitted, uh, the manuscript kind of just as a collection of essays and it was kind of sparse and random, but you know, the, uh, the, the publisher of this book, New Star, uh, publishers who are based out of uh, Vancouver, kind of suggested, you know, why don't you like smash some of these essays together? Why don't you create some new writing around them? Why don't you bring them up to date? You know, we're dealing with a pandemic right now. Why don't we sort of like bring this in? Um, so even like, you know, an essay that was published in 2014 when the world seemed a little uh, calmer before Trump, before Brexit, before COVID, um, still kind of resonates today. Um, so we kind of just brought it up to date a little bit. Um, so some of the, are, are any of the essays as they originally were written, or have you pretty much updated all of them? I pretty much updated all of them. I think maybe, um, maybe there's, there's one essay which uh, I think we will probably end up talking about which is on the American Pie franchise that pretty much exists in the book as it existed when it was first published online but again it was kind of one of those essays that was uh, you know published back in 2014 maybe and um, kind of just lost lost on the internet you know so I'm quite proud of that essay and wanted to sort of get it out there again. And I think it actually resonate, resonates even more uh, than it did back in 2014, actually. I know at the end of the book, at the, at the end of the entire book, you have a list of where all of these were originally published, at least in one form or another. So, uh, and, and then are there any brand new to this collection or which ones are? Because I, I assume at least a couple of them are new. Yeah. Um, there are a few new ones in there. The very last uh, essay, uh, titled "The Slow Dissolve," um, is a, it's entirely brand new. Uh, the introduction to the book, as well, is all new ideas in there. And I assume uh, the afterward too. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, yes, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. The uh, concluding kind of um, uh, essay as well, uh, because that that really does kind of bring in the, the COVID nineteen pandemic as well. Um, but yeah, and then throughout the sort of um, the essays, there's kind of like connecting bridges, which are like brand new, uh, that kind of bring bring the essay into sort of today's today's light. So, um, yeah. So the subtitle of the book is "Film in the Age of Emergency." I assume that's what we're talking about. That the what your publisher and you've already what you've mentioned is that a lot of the ideas and where you're trying to write about relate to present day, particularly with the pandemic and other kinds of emergencies. Is that really what your plan was? Yeah, I think the, uh, the subtitle kind of came a little later, actually. Um, 
but uh, I feel like we're dealing with so many emergencies. I mean, I, I don't know where what, a, what you've been experiencing this past summer, but here in Canada, we've had some of the craziest weather um, weather events. I mean, I'm in a relatively calm place uh, in Ontario, but we've seen some incredible storms here. Um, but across Canada, you know, wildfires, floods across the world, more floods and droughts. Um, it's really been an awful uh, summer for weather events and, and climate catastrophe. And I feel that uh, obviously that's kind of like the overriding emergency right now. But then, yes, on top of that, we also have the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think, you know, it, this is like, um, to me, this is like whack-a-mole. You know, these are all just side effects, I think, of a larger emergency, which is that of, um, you know, neoliberalism, capitalism, the way that we've uh, shaped our world for profit and um I feel that, that is probably the biggest emergency that I feel that we face. And we can't deal with the climate emergency. We can't really deal with COVID-19 unless we face that issue of uh, uh, unfettered capitalism, basically. Yeah, I live in northeastern Kentucky, and I must admit, um, we don't weather-wise, the biggest issue we had was in February. We had an incredible ice storm, which most people around here said they've never seen anything like it. Um, we were out of power for two weeks. Um, ice was every place. You couldn't even get anywhere. It was just ridiculous. I mean, we don't usually get a lot of snow. We get some cold weather, but not snow. And yet this was just pure ice all over the place. And it was like four days before the temperature got back above freezing, or actually even a little longer. And so that happened, and that was unusual. Of course, around here, we also I'm also living in an area where the other two big, quite big issues for us in the United States have been very important. Uh, obviously, the most current one is the pandemic, where I'm definitely living in an area where there is a certain group of people who aren't particularly interested in vaccinations or this vaccination. Um, and then, of course, then we have the folks who supported the last United States president and still many of them still claiming that he's still the president or should be. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get into any of that, but it gives you a little bit of sense of what I have, what I deal with here. And then, of course, I have uh, friends and relatives in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I'm from. And we haven't gone up there very much because of the pandemic, but we were up there a couple of months ago. And it was very interesting to be in an area that's got a different point of view and uh, found it very interesting as a comparison. And and not that we're not happy where we are. It's We're here for my wife's um, job. But there's no question that uh, there are days where we sort of miss the slightly different point of view that we get up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really rough. I, I remember reading and seeing images of that um, of that ice storm because I do have a friend who is in that area as well. And I was concerned about them. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was just uh, the starting pistol for this year's Absolutely in, in, just right. intense, intense weather. Um, I think it's finally put it on the map a little bit, you know, like put it on people's agendas a little bit. But I mean, over here in Canada, we've just voted, you know, we've just had our um, federal election and we've just voted in uh, the uh, Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau. And um, it's just the same old, same old, you know, we're not going to be going anywhere with uh, with the, this Liberal government. They're not going to be um, initiating any any major uh, changes in policy that will um positively affect the climate it's only going to be continuation of what they see as uh, as well the continuation of their neoliberalist point of view i suppose we had an opportunity i suppose to to vote in a uh, a progressive uh, government with the ndp here in canada but uh, we didn't so um one day we might but uh, we're running out of time so that's uh, that's kind of the emergency that the, the we're dealing with and that's kind of the book takes those emergencies and slams them through the lens of film so well we're not going to discuss every essay obviously i forgot i didn't count so you can tell me when see one two three it's 12 essays i think and then afterwards so it's yeah quite i think a, that's about right yeah yeah yeah. so they're yeah. obviously people like hearing me count over the internet so anyway uh luckily i grouped them in threes that's that's how i yeah. learned to do math that's anyway exactly right. um 
So we're going to talk a few about a few of them. Some are ones that I've particularly found interesting, and then there's a couple that you wanted to particularly talk about. So hopefully we'll give people a taste of what's in here so they know, uh, get a better sense of what your writing plan was. Mm-hmm. And the first chapter is Star Wars Accelerationism, and that's right at the beginning, so I think it's a good one to start with because usually when you write anything or film or anything, whatever's first, is and music for that matter, first mm-hmm. tends to be very important because it's how you start off, it's how you grab the reader, yeah. and and so I think the Star Wars chapter is 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 very good place to start. And when did you, is this, I'm assuming this is somewhat older, but you go all the way to the to the last film, you know, the last official film. So, uh, what's the genesis of this chapter? Um, it's a really good question, and uh, it's such a vast uh, chapter that I'm not 100 percent sure even I know what it's all about. But I really did try to uh, cram as much ideas in there as possible because uh, I'm a huge fan of Star Wars, and I have been for uh, many, many years. I was kind of late to it. I I really didn't get into it until the prequels trilogy back in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. But I was just so super excited about, you know, this this idea of a sequel trilogy with new characters and and things like that. And, you know, Disney's kind of takeover obviously concerned me a little bit, but um, I I thought I would just uh, sweep that aside and enjoy that, you know, reminiscing about Star Wars, but also embracing this kind of new idea of Star Wars, which, um, I mean, just didn't really come to pass. You know, the, um, the, the chapter itself is called Star Wars Accelerationism. And I think that ultimately, when you look at the sequel trilogy, the, the films of, um, you know, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker, it's this race to the finish line. I mean, it really it really is this idea of trying to um, push out three films as fast as possible. Um, yeah, because they film, came out every two years instead of the original ones, which of were three. three. Yeah, that's right. That's one thing that obviously is is different. Um, but you've also got to take into account the, the sort of uh, teaser effect as well of these films that always start about a year before. Um, the internet is a big deal now as well. I mean, it was obviously a well used back in the early 2000s as well. But um, now every... Uh, Every YouTuber and every uh, blogger can decipher every single uh, morsel of information that's out there. And some of, some YouTubers and podcasters are making a living now out of uh, Star Wars um, theories and, uh, and delving into sort of uh, Star Wars lore. So it's become kind of like its own little cottage industry on the side. But I really feel like... Um, with, with this particular uh, trilogy of films, that there was no plan uh, from Disney. Each film kind of reacts to the other one with no real co- coherence. And so when I got to review the final film, The Rise of Skywalker, which came out in uh, December 2019, um, which seems like a lifetime ago now, and because in um, many ways it was it was just before yeah the pandemic. yeah i feel like i've aged uh maybe four or five years as opposed to just two from that perspective but um i i gotta say i was just super super disappointed you know there was elements of of uh narrative in the uh last jedi which um which i thought made star wars a uh, uh which i think points star wars in a more progressive way uh, or more progressive direction and then the last uh, sorry the um the rise of skywalker kind of just scrapped that completely and just went full-on adventure film and uh really just unsatisfying conclusion but it was it wasn't just the the fact of this unsatisfying conclusion to a to a trilogy of films it's obviously the concluding chapter of a nine film arc that we are meant to sort of watch from the phantom menace all the way through to uh, the rise of Skywalker, and um, uh, I mean, I just I've never I've never done it. I've done I've done six films back to back. I've never done the nine films, and I can't imagine what it would feel like to uh, to get to the end of that um, to get to the end of those nine films and and be faced with this 
inconclusive um, movie that doesn't push anything forward. And, and also then I got to thinking like, and I, I do this in the chapter um, to some length, you know, what, what is going on in the Star Wars universe now, like after this film has, uh, uh, sorry, after this story has kind of wrapped up? Because, you know, the galaxy far, far away does not seem like it's in a very good place after, uh, this, uh, after this film. You know, we've had a trilogy of, uh, of this kind of quasi-empire, the rise of that, and then it's all. And we have at the very end of that film, um, spoilers, but, you know, there's all these uh, ships that show up to fight the remnants of the empire and this uh, first order. And we don't know who these people are. They're, they could be scoundrels of the worst kind, pirates, bounty hunters. Um, some of them we definitely know are <laughs> assassins and bounty hunters because uh, we meet them earlier on in the film. So it kind of comes to this conclusion that the galaxy is kind of just going off in this uh, strange place of no, no real unity. There's no Jedi. There's no leadership from any of the previous films. And uh, that leaves that leaves me deeply unsatisfied, and I think I think it probably left a lot of people unsatisfied as well. Um, as a standalone movie, or even as a start of a new trilogy, it would probably be a good a good way to begin, but a good way to end, it's not. And so that chapter kind of deals with that a little bit, um, and uh, it kind of deals with the fandom as well. You know, there's a lot of sort of toxic fandom in the Star Wars, uh, Star Wars communities that kind of have reared their ugly head over over the Last Jedi, but also over the uh, the Rise of Skywalker as well. And uh, it just seems very it, reminiscent of what is happening within the film. Uh, you know, these all these different. Um, you know, fighters at the end of the film don't really have any unifying uh, ideology or anything like that so it's uh, it's a mess and so the fandom's a mess and the films are now a bit of a mess as well i will say though that uh, disney has done a pretty good job at the tv productions which i don't really cover too much in the book they're mentioned but um again it's it's the start it's the accelerationism of everything that uh, disney has done they pushed out five movies in uh in the space of uh five years uh a two-season tv show uh and, and, an and then an anim and a bunch of animated things yeah, so a bunch of animated shows so there's a lot of star wars content out there and i think the best way for it to move forward is probably just through streaming now through television and through uh through streaming because the movies are pretty much dead in the water now i think um yeah, enjoyable experience watching it at the movie theater, but at the same time, I did I did just come out feeling totally de defeated, and um, yeah, so that chapter kind of does deal with that a little bit. My own personal sort of um, uh, disappointments, um, but on the bigger picture, the sort of the idea that like if you just if you could just have a plan and then stick with it, you might have just actually developed a decent film. Or if you're going to cast uh, minority actors, how about you let them see their character arc all the way through rather than kind of dismiss them in the sort of next film, you know? Um, just a huge mess. So, yeah, Star Wars Accelerationism kind of um, starts the book off uh, slightly pessimistic, but there is a lot more hope in the, uh, in the book itself. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, we can always use a new, new hope, so that's good. Uh, I must admit, one of the things that you said that, that I definitely agree with is that the biggest problem with the last three movies is that there wasn't an overall person in charge. 
George Lucas, yeah. you can complain yeah. all you want about aspects of what he did and how he changed things and, and his lack of reasonably good uh, writing skills, at least dialogue and things like that. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is you knew it was unified. And, uh, yes. you yep. know, it, as far as that part is concerned, now I, I go to Star Wars all the way back. I was eight, nine, 19 years old when Star Wars came out. And... Um, I, there's no question in my well, actually 21. Sorry about that. I can't do my math. Um, one of the things that I always remembered was as each film came out, you kept saying, okay, did I like it? So, for example, you know, everybody loved Star Wars, but then when Empire came out, everybody says, oh, my, he did he did better. Of course, remember back then he wasn't 100%. I mean, he was in charge, but Irvin Kirshner really took that film on his own. Jedi, we didn't like as much because it seemed like he backed, you know, things backed up a little bit as far as quality. And then when the the prequels came out, we were all going crazy. Oh boy, here they come! And then you had to sit there after Phantom Menace, and you didn't want to come right out and say, "I didn't really like it that much." But yeah, yeah. it was I tough. Have no memories of that film, right? Obviously, no, no memories of watching that movie in the movie theater. I've seen it so many times on DVD, but I I definitely went to the movie theater. A, a bunch of times to watch that and i have no memory of it at all so very strange but you know yeah they brought in jj abrams to do uh force awakens and of course he also did rise of skywalker but it's obvious he didn't have total control he t especially with no. rise of skywalker no. there are a number of interviews in which he talks about how things he wanted to do got shut down by disney yeah yeah there, there, there was another director on that and who uh you know who had a heard a great story and it's it's on there it's on the internet somewhere you know the director actually put the story and screenplay that he had planned and it would have made a much more exciting film but anyway we could spend the whole hour talking about this and we've already spent quite a bit so let's move on we're talking about men on the verge of a nervous breakdown um if i read what you were trying to say reasonably well in my reading um you were trying to talk about um films that have a distinct male audience or male contingent is that basically where i where i was right about yeah yeah definitely um so um i talk about uh, in that chapter first of all i start with the bachelor party which uh interestingly enough me and you actually did talk about the bachelor party uh, on a podcast i think it was for the dirty dancing episode and we we actually did discuss this particular essay which is really quite weird um but yeah, so I start with the, the the Bachelor Party, which is a 1984 Tom Hanks movie. Um, very misogynistic, very uh, uh, well, not very, I suppose, but certainly elements of uh, racism and stereotyping in there. Um, and I start with that film just because it's my way in, basically. Like this film was a film that I watched when I was a kid to almost to the point where the VHS tape destroyed itself. And uh, that's what I, uh, I talk about in the, in the uh, opening of that chapter is because uh, I, it was almost like an exorcism, getting this film out of my system, watching it so many times that I basically destroyed it. And uh, I've rarely ever gone back to it. Um, but when I was obviously like a kid, you know, when I was laid on, I mean, I was young when I watched this film, I was probably younger than I should have been to watch this movie. But for whatever reason, my parents thought that because it had Tom Hanks in it must be wholesome. And uh, this was an early Tom Hanks movie when he was still uh, just coming off uh, TV and going into movies. So yeah, there's quite a lot of sex in there. There's not a lot of nudity, but there is a little bit. All of this didn't bother me at all as a kid. I was more interested in the humor. And um, yeah, and, and so over the years, you know, this VHS tape, which contained this uh, taped version of the uh, of the Bachelor Party, is is just being slowly chewed up uh, by my uh, top loader VHS machine, but then is also being kind of corrupted by my own sort of messing around with the remote control and things like that. So I wanted to open that chapter with a personal kind of experience of of a of a male film. And then we kind of launch into um, uh, discussing four movies that are all by female directors. So there is uh, American Psycho, Point Break, um, Hump Day, and Old Joy. 
and uh, two of those films I would sort of say are from more or less the mainstream, um, uh, Point Break and, uh, and uh, American Psycho. And then the other two are kind of more from the indie uh, cinema scene, uh, low budget, uh, not as well-known actors, uh, probably. And, um, you know, just kind of have a bit of a slower story unfolding. And I was really interested in what a female perspective on male friendship or uh, male, uh, what you mentioned there, dominance, it, and how, how that plays out uh, from a female perspective. And so uh, I was really kind of intrigued to watch Point Break, because again, like one of my most favorite movies of when I was younger, um, and just sort of see that kind of homoeroticism that was kind of playing out in uh, in Point Break, and then also in um, in Hump Day and Old Joy, there is also a sort of sense of uh, of homoeroticism, but also competitiveness as well. And that's kind of the driving story behind Hump Day is actually uh, two guys who can't back down from a bet end up uh, convincing each other that they must have sex on film and enter it into a, um, uh, an adult movie um, festival. And they basically can't back down from each other. It's male competitiveness. And then in Old Joy, uh, two friends who haven't seen each other for a while kind of go camping together. And there's a few moments there where uh, one of the characters kind of uh, maybe inappropriately kind of touches the other one, but the other one kind of lets it happen. and. Uh, I just felt that that was an interesting perspective that uh, a female director took that a male director would probably not have would probably have not have done. So, and then uh, we move into that the ending of that chapter um, because we've talked a little bit about um, masculinity and toxic masculinity. We kind of move into Trump, and we kind of move into uh, a book called The Scum Manifesto, which was written by Valerie Solanas. Uh, 50 years before uh, Trump's inauguration. And so it was quite fitting that those two things happened because the description of, of uh, the scum male in the scum manifesto perfectly aligns with uh, a description of Trump or a description of any of the horrible, disgusting men that we've kind of had to be... Uh, had been dealing with in the past few years, Trump, Harvey Weinstein. When you read the Scum Manifesto, you realize that uh, Valerie Salamis was 50 years ahead of all of this stuff. And it's a controversial book, but I feel like it's a necessary one to read in this, in this current climate. Of course, in 1971, all of these issues were still going on. It's just, as you say, it, it tended not to be discussed very much because it was still a male-dominated world, even if... Uh, the you know the major women's liberation movement had started by had been going on by then for a while. One of the things I found so interesting about this chapter was the whole discussion of VHS, and it's one of those things that you talk about more than once in the book, and that's the idea of how informa- how these movies or how our content is is uh, de- delivered. Um, Back in the day, obviously pre-video recordings, the only way to see a film there was two ways. You could see it in the theater or you could hope that it showed up on television. Of course, if it showed up on television, at least in the United States, the good chance was it was going to be edited. Even unless it was a really old film, uh, once the rating board started uh, and films got to be a little more uh, uh, involved and weren't because they were able to, to use the ratings to still end up presenting information without censorship. Um, once they showed up on television, they required editing. And, uh, of course, you mentioned in your discussion of Bachelor Party, you had said this was actually not just a VHS recording of it, but a VHS recording off of television. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even an original tape. Back when you were growing up, was Great Britain editing these films or were they showing them as is? No, they would have been editing these films. Absolutely. I'm not sure if they, we had we had in the UK this thing called The Watershed, which meant uh, films shown before 9 p.m. would have to have language and nudity cut out of it. Um, and uh, then post 
post watershed i think films would just go out as they were but i i got a feeling this was taped uh before the watershed and uh i mean i i have a clear memory of even being in bed in bed at the time and my parents calling me down and saying hey there's a tom hanks movie on do you want to come down and watch it like come out of bed and watch it with us and so that would have been you know uh before before 9 9 p.m so yeah i think there was, there was definitely some editing in there not anything that i really noticed but um you know i think i saw the film on dvd a few years later and it didn't really it didn't really seem different other than these kind of cues which were on the vhs where the uh the film would be cut into with uh advertisements you know where all the catchy uh jingles and stuff like that would uh come on and i think even maybe even a, a news uh a, a five minute newscast as well would would usually come on as well and um they, those were missing from the dvd and when i watched the dvd i was like uh you know i i saw those cues and then it just seamlessly cut to the next scene and i was like oh the, no there's something missing there and then obviously I'd, I'd been very juvenile with the uh with the tv zapper and i'd cut lots of little um uh, scenes into the videotape from like you know tennis matches and things like that from uh from Wimbledon in like 1990 or something like that I don't know and so I was expecting all these things to happen and they never did so it was quite cool because I kind of had this individual copy individual idea of what the film was in my head which I don't think we have anymore I think film is streamed now and we don't really have those physical formats that can be uh, you know, can be damaged, can be manipulated. Uh, we all have the same film on our devices. It all comes to us in the same way. Uh, edited, it doesn't need editing anymore. You know, you can watch a film at any time of the day. So it's just interesting. It, there's obviously an element of nostalgia there. I, I want to I sort of go back to those times, but I'm also hooked into, uh, into having the convenience of streaming. Um, but man, do I, do I spend a good half hour to 40 minutes searching for something to watch rather than actually just being presented with something to watch, which was when, you know, when you had TV, you looked down the listings and you saw the film was on at like 9 PM on Friday night. That was your plan. I'm going to watch that at 9 PM on Friday. And uh, now it's like, I just, I stroll, I scroll through the, I've got like four different streaming services and i scream I, I stream through them all before i finally find one thing that i will watch and usually it's something that i've already seen so i'm already familiar with it um but yeah occasionally it, it will happen um where i will watch something brand new and be uh, absolutely swept away with of course in the united states and i'm presumably canada i don't know what the tv situation really is like in great britain but we have all these you know we have huge amounts of channels and yet there are regular cable channels that still so f show f films with commercials and everything. I mean, TBS, TNT. I mean, it's every weekend. It's nonstop superhero Marvel films. And yet they all have commercials in them. And yet yep. you, you want to ask yourself, who's watching them? I mean, especially like Marvel and Star Wars, there's absolutely no reason. You can spend a few bucks on Disney Plus and then if yep. you live in the United States and you can watch them uncut and stuff. And yet. They obviously must be getting some amount of uh, viewers because yeah. they keep doing it. They never seem to change. Well, yeah, that's a really good point. But I also have to sort of raise, like, what's the difference? You know, um, watching a Marvel movie is like watching an advertisement uh, with so much product placement in there anyway. What's the difference if a bunch of, uh, you know, adverts show up every uh, 40 minutes to break up the narrative, <laughs> you know? Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know what the difference is really, but uh, anyway, I think um, obviously streaming is our future, and I'm I'm hooked into it. But uh, I wish I could be more decisive and, and just go ahead and watch the, the new films that come on this on the uh, on the device. Well, let's let's both stop acting like we're old and let's move on to another chapter, All American Tragedy, which is about the American Pie movies. We're talking the four actual feature films, not the direct-to-video material that continued on. Um, what's interesting is, is when you start writing that chapter, I started to read it and I said, I'm not sure I get it. Is he joking at the beginning? But the more I read it, and I said, no, you actually have a serious point you're making at, by in the way you describe those films, especially the first one. Uh, talk a little bit about how you 
developed your personal ideas about particularly of the first one, but then of course the entire series. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's been a while actually. Uh, that that chapter, well, that that essay appears in the book pretty much as it appeared back in 2014 when it was published online somewhere. Um, I think it was published in a in a magazine called Gadfly, which I think is still around. I'm not sure if it still produces new stuff, but it's there somewhere. And um, I don't know. I guess I was sort of thinking. Well, the, so initially, I had no ideas about. Uh, the American Pie franchise because each movie is a you know kind of uh, I mean I I hold them I hold them to my close to my heart because I was of a similar age to the the boys in the film uh, when it actually came out in '99 you know I was uh, I guess I guess 18 19 years old um, the characters in that film are around about that age although the actors are actually much older. Um, but uh, so I, I have like a, a certain affection for those films, especially the first one. Um, but it really wasn't until like the reunion uh, came out, uh, which I think I believe came out in 2012, um, that I was like, oh, there's something quite interesting here. Because when you look at the original film, you kind of, First of all, it's it's set in a in a period of time which we all kind of look back on with some, um, you know, sense of nostalgia and sense of wonder of that period of time, the late '90s, where it was it was before 9/11, it was before the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, it was before the financial crash, uh, and we could just keep going on. It was before Trump. It was before. Brexit, you know, it, it, the last 20 years has been, you know, uh, kind of exhausting. And I feel like when you look back at the 90s, it was probably no different, really, than it was. We were just younger, that's all. And I was obviously a teenager in the 90s and having the time of my life. So, you know, wasn't didn't have adult responsibilities to consider. So that's kind of why I look back on it so fondly. Um, but yeah, when the reunion kind of came out, um we're talking sort of like 13 14 years after the original and um the characters are not really where you would have expected them to be so when you kind of look at the original film you've got the four characters so you have uh jim kevin chris and uh and finch and um you're also on the periphery of that group as well you have uh, Stifler, and that's the main focus of the film. I mean, there are obviously some there are female characters in there as well, but uh, really, it's uh, those four boys and and Stifler on the periphery. And then later in the later in the franchise, Stifler becomes a bit more of a main character. Um, but you know, they've got a lot of things going for them. They're from fairly wealthy middle class backgrounds. They're all white. Um, and uh they've all got their quirks but they're fairly popular in school you know um jim's kind of a nerd paul finch is kind of a nerd as is kevin and then you've got chris ostriker who's this kind of sporty sporty popular one who kind of brings them in to the fold i suppose of being popular uh in their in their kind of class or in their in their school and um yeah, you kind of feel like, you know, these guys are going to do well. You know, this, they've got some eccentricities. Uh, Paul Finch, for example, they refer to him as shipbreak because he likes to leave school to go and use his own bathroom as opposed to the one in the school. But he's, he has a sense of uh, uh, worldliness about him that probably wasn't, uh, you know, uh, for a teenager, he has a, you know, he's a connoisseur of good coffee and things like that. And you kind of expect them all to go good places. Stifler is uh, a guy who we see to be incredibly popular and incredibly rich. And, um, you know, and then when we join them in the reunion, you know, Jim is uh, married to uh, Michelle. They're basically exhausted parents. Um Chris uh, was a sports star and now is like a sports caster for like a cable sports channel. Um, Stifler, who we first sort of see as, um, you know, kind of strolling around this office, like giving out orders at this, uh, this, what looks like a sort of 
uh, a tech startup or something like that. But then he turns, you know, it turns out he's actually just the intern. And uh, Paul Finch, the kind of eccentric coffee connoisseur, the one who seemed very worldly, who was going to do great things, maybe become a writer or something like that, is, uh, is an assistant manager at Staples, the uh, stationery store. Nothing wrong with being an assistant manager at Staples. It's just maybe not what we didn't envision for him and maybe what he didn't envision for himself. And I think like when you look at the, the reunion in the sort of like post 9-11, uh, post, well, the war was obviously still going on, but the, the post uh, kind of uh, main part of the, the war, the post mission accomplished, um, and the post crash as well. Um, you kind of see that uh, neoliberalism, capitalism has kind of expanded to the point where it eats its own. You know, even the kids that were going to do well have kind of like fallen down because uh, the system wasn't there to hold them up anymore. Uh, you know, they've somehow along the line they've lost their status as as good clean all-american white boys you know and um i just kind of felt that 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 film put a real sort of uh stab in the heart of what we were all probably expecting to be at that age as well you know i was I was maybe expecting to be something and somewhere different as well but you know i was maybe was thinking i was going to be traveling the world and uh but you know life catches up with you and it catches up with these guys as well and uh then they weren't immune to it they weren't immune to the uh the sort of influx of uh of neoliberalism post-crash where it had to you know eat its own children basically in order to survive and that circle is just getting smaller and smaller as we're all being kind of jettisoned out so the middle class is now uh you know the middle class has become the working class and the working class is the underclass now all that's left is just the uh, the upper echelons, the billionaires and the the tech wealthy millionaires, I suppose. So uh, it's quite a sad sort of idea, but uh, I think it just ties in with where where we all ended up, you know, post 9/11, post crash. Yeah, the one issue to me with the first film, and I'm not the only, I'm not the first person to say this, but it has become pretty much a topic of discussion when we talk about um, teenage sex comedies is the scenes where they try to uh, put the the exchange student over the internet without her knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we run into that with other films that got good reputations for being enjoyable during the period of Revenge of the Nerds is another one. And it's mm-hmm. probably the one part, and although in the end he gets his comeuppance. The fact that they yes. were he was they were actually going to do it is the is one of the negatives. Which unfortunately, I agree with you. The idea that the film actually is anti-athlete, if you think about it, there's only mm-hmm. one athlete of the group, and mm-hmm. in the end, he doesn't go to his game. He ends up going to the uh, the coral. Um, yep, yep, and uh, he and he's also the only one who uh, doesn't lose his virginity that night as well. So um, there, there was no yeah. question that, that the filmmaker was trying to to come at things with a little different way. And I guess uh, the fact that there's a lot of raunchiness is, it, at first glance, makes it harder to see those kind of things. But in the end, I agree with you. They, there yeah. is certainly a, an attempt to show things differently. Yep. And uh, even with a, a storyline that's probably been used in some way, shape, or form a number of times, but the concept, mm-hmm. at least, of trying to get uh, having sex for the first time as you graduate. Yeah, yeah. So, as I say, we've talked about only three chapters, and we've been on for almost an hour. But um, so obviously, there's plenty of others. There's you've de- you cut you delve back in with Dennis Hopper in a chapter and talk about mm-hmm. David Lynch as well with that chapter. You've got a whole chapter about Nicolas Cage, a uh, number of other chapters. There's one about disaster films, more current ones, starting with uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon, which came out at the, almost at the same time, both mm-hmm. basically destroying, or try, attempting or planning on destroying the world. One succeeds at least to an extent, and the other one they're saved. But let's talk about your afterward, because that was obviously the, one of the more current things, and it's your discussion of of you know entertainment and film 
in the current pandemic period, what was your uh, what did you want to cap the book off by saying? Yeah, I guess um, you know th- there's obviously elements in the book which are a little pessimistic, and uh, that just comes from uh, you know the film culture that we kind of exist in right now. Um, so I wanted to sort of like take the idea of uh, of the pandemic and how it has affected film and kind of try and make a positive spin on it. You know, in the past year, um, obviously, I mean, I, I live in a relatively small city. I've got this amazing um, movie theater uh, downtown. Uh, it's small. It only seats about uh, uh, maybe 100 people per screen. But right now, obviously, they can only seat about 20, you know, with social distancing, mask compliance and things like that. Um, so they're, they're struggling. They're having a hard time. And uh, but what what kind of happened and what was really positive is, you know, the kind of the community around the, the movie theater kind of came together and there was uh, donation runs and things like that. And they they've got about, you know, they've got another year of uh, of time to sort of adjust to this new normal that we keep hearing about. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of like make a positive case for films. And, and kind of like the access that we now have because uh, film festivals are happening online. So a film festival like, uh, well, you know what, maybe not like uh, the Cannes Film Festival. Maybe I can't attend that virtually, but my downtown one, uh, the, Kings, uh, the, um, uh, the Kingston Canadian uh, Film Festival that happened uh, back in uh, April, I believe, you know, was, was all virtual and they had the best attendance they'd ever had. They had people from uh, Paris, Ontario, and Paris, France attending. You know, this is, this is actually really quite remarkable that we have uh, new films that are being screened at, um, at film festivals that usually maybe we couldn't attend because we would have to travel or, you know, maybe we'd have to even leave the country. Maybe they weren't even showing in a, even in our region. But now we have this incredible access and uh, I really hope what kind of happens, and this is what I talk about in the book, is that we kind of, we keep this, we kind of have this kind of hybrid version, even when the pandemic is over and we can go all and sit in movie theaters together again. Um, I think it would still be really wonderful for people to still have from all around the world to kind of access uh, film through this method, because we're all used to it now as well. Like we've all been streaming films on our laptops, uh, for the past, I don't know, like 10 years, really, maybe even more, you know, we're all there. The only thing that I do obviously feel a a bit sad for is, you know, the, the sort of the, the multiplex uh, kind of as it exists and maybe won't exist anymore um, because we're all out of the habit of going to the big movie theaters now. I mean, I, I, I went to one a few weeks ago and had a pretty, pretty good time, but I mean, it was me and my son and then maybe three or three other families in this vast auditorium watching Space Jam, you know. Um, it doesn't really need to happen that way anymore. So maybe, um, maybe the films, maybe the multiplex dies, replaced by smaller movie theaters or different viewing experiences. I've always really enjoyed watching films in different places like uh, art galleries or even outside. You know, we have a, a big square downtown, which accommodates a really big screen. And uh, they've had, you know, Thursday night movies in the square. And it's been it's been fantastic. So maybe we do that. And then maybe uh, Hollywood and mainstream movies don't need to spend billions of dollars uh, making and promoting these, ma- making and marketing these immense movies, Marvel Star Wars uh, movies, maybe we don't need those so much anymore. If they can be small, if we can make smaller, more engaging films about what it means to be human, what it means to live in a a community like the one that I live in, um, maybe we can make more, you know, films that are regionally based as opposed to these big international uh, money making movies. Um, I'd love to get back to, you know, film as art um and it's happened before you know we've had we've had movements within 
cinema. We've had the new Hollywood films of the 1960s and 70s. We've had mumblecore, which was a, a little subgenre of independent film, which films like uh, Hum Day and um, Old Joy and, uh, you know, those very small, intimate films kind of came out of. And I think that would just be really wonderful to kind of go back there. So the afterword of the book kind of does point us in that direction. And I hope that uh, readers of the book who are film lovers and film goers take some away from that. But if filmmakers as well read that chapter and maybe think to themselves, you know, maybe I don't need to make this vast budget movie. Maybe I can just go out with my video camera and record my community and make stories within within my low within my local region or my local area there's always stuff going on and uh yeah so that's kind of where the afterward takes us well it's funny because i think that was already starting to happen pre-pandemic when you think about first netflix to a large extent but then just about every other all not just about all the streaming services now have their own in-house productions or they buy uh, feature films that maybe show up in a theater briefly just to qualify them for an Academy Award. But other than mm -hmm. that, uh, or any other kind of award, but in the end, that's the way they're known. And just about every ma major filmmaker now doesn't even think twice about doing it. I mean, Marty Scorsese did The the Irishman on, and uh, a number of other major filmmakers who you at first thought wouldn't have think they would do it ended up doing it and a lot of these were obviously pre-pandemic and the fact yep. that so many of these are winning awards both television awards and movie awards tells us that i think even if it wasn't planned that way originally the pandemic has really helped that take off and now it's just a matter of seeing how it goes forward i think the financing issues and the fact that right now at least at least in some of these films the international box office is so important particularly China and some of the other countries, that we're still going to yeah. see certain films. They're going to release into the theaters because they want to make sure yeah. they get that uh, that box office. But uh, it will be... In Unfortunately, there's a whole issue related to when you accept money from international film uh, you know, companies, it, it definitely affects the actual filmmaking, and, and mm -hmm. that's a whole subject all by itself. But uh, anyway... I think we're going to definitely see, I mean, and in, in each case, like I say, Star Wars and Marvel had already started to plan out their TV series before pandemic hit. It's just, And in fact, what's actually happened is it's the movies that were delayed, not the TV series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, um, as, as we kind of move into this kind of post-pandemic world, you know, there's already uh, films coming out in the, in the next uh, few years, like uh, The Batman, and they're going to be hitting streaming as well as being uh, released to the movie theater. And I, I just think that's a really great thing, um, you know, because it, it gives people more access, I suppose. Uh, people who may not be able to be vaccinated against this uh, disease can still go and watch a movie. And uh, just, just to like put a little postscript on, you know, I'm still super, super excited about the next Star Wars movies, the next Marvel movies. Um, I saw the trailer for the Matrix, uh, new Matrix movie that's coming out. And like, it still gives me that like tingle up the spine. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not dissing the big films, but I think that there's room now to, to have in our, in our culture, these smaller movies that can do better because we just have the access. Now we have access to film festivals that, that hybrid themselves across the world so that you know you have in-person attendance and online attendance and uh, we have just uh just a ton of really great streaming services like canopy and uh the criterion channel and things like that you know and so it's it's good in a way but you know the content is obviously massive and that's a kind of a key word is content i i, I don't want to see content anymore i just want to see movies funny part about it is the other thing that streaming has given us is depending on your willingness you can put together a much better viewing and sound system than some of the movie theaters and yeah, uh, yeah especially absolutely. when you yeah. think that watching a film in a, in a theater can be a great experience but if the projections i mean if the like i it's always been my feeling that the digital 
and maybe it's just the movie theaters I'm going to, not that I've been to any for a while, they always seem darker than they need to be. And, and, and when you're at home and you're with your own television and sound system, things can look so much better. But uh, And I think that's just a Hollywood thing, or not just Hollywood, every yep. place. They just need to work hard. If they really want to keep movie theaters going, they can't let them become second rate or second nature that no matter what, no, uh, you're no. not going to want to go to the theater because their experience isn't as good. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, um, the, the technology has been democratized. You know, I carry, a, I carry around with me a, a pretty decent video camera, you know, in my pocket. Uh, and editing software is free online. So, you know, it's, we're, we've, we're, we've got no excuses anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, when I was filmmaking back in the uh, mid-2000s, you know, camera equipment was a few hundred, well, I was in the UK, so a few hundred pounds and Adobe uh, editing software and stuff like that was uh, a couple of hundred as well. Yeah, now it's just not even necessary. So, uh, and the other yeah, part is that, that movie uh, streaming services, depending on your television, um, have now reached the point where with 4K, they are getting almost the same now as what you would see in a movie theater. 4K is, you know, we're reaching the point now where the difference between 4K and whatever would be next may well be negligible. And, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's something that never obviously we've gotten to that point and i'll you know to me uh, uh i think that makes it even more exciting to be able to the home viewing experiences can be so much interesting absolutely so well we've talked about this book uh we've only given it a taste but i think it's a good taste I, hopefully what we talked about with the various chapters we discussed were interesting to the listener, and and I hope we you feel like we've discussed the book well enough to not just sell it, but also to give it a good give a good sense as to what's included in it, and yep. what kind of writing uh, people can look forward to, not only from this book, but whatever other writing you do, and then whatever future books are in the in coming forward that uh, they continue to get a good sense of 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 what you want to say about film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Joel. So. I appreciate the time and I hope things go well. And once again, we'll probably talk again in the future. Thanks a lot. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Thank you. Thanks for joining me, Stephen. I found your essays to help give a view of various films along with your own personal experiences with them. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.